Hello, my name is David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. And I'm delighted to welcome Michael Gove, who's in Cambridge, to talk about his vision of Europe post-Brexit. We're speaking on Friday afternoon, so the results of the local elections, many of them are in, and it looks very good for the Conservative Party, but we're not going to speak about that, um, although we may allude to what might be coming down the line. We've spent a lot of time, as regular listeners will know on this podcast, talking about the French presidential election. I think we can assume at this point on Friday before the Sunday that Mr Macron is going to win. And Michael, in that broader question about what the future of Europe might be post-Brexit, how much difference do you think a Macron presidency might make, given that he's a reformer, but he's also a passionate pro-European, pro-European Union. I think Macron is a fascinating figure, David. And I think that uh, I agree with you, he's almost certain to win. I think that uh, if Marine Le Pen had an opportunity, it was in the television debate earlier this week, and he more than held his own. And I think she also showed a vulnerability, particularly actually on economics, but also in the way in which he managed to depict her as a, a harbinger of division rather than a unifier, which is what she's tried to be, of course, in the last uh, 10 to 12 days. Now, assuming Macron wins, which I do, I think that uh, he will both be a radical departure, but also a symbol of continuity. A radical departure, of course, in that he has created a party from almost nothing. He's used very sophisticated social media and big data techniques to build that party. And he's also someone who has made it clear that he wants to challenge and, if possible, break some of the consensus, traditional Gaullist or French socialist views of how the labour market and how government should work. So he's positioning himself very much as a, as a neoliberal domestically, but he's also someone who wants to revivify a sense of Europeanism amongst the French population and indeed amongst the EU population by bringing something of the same reforming zeal he hopes to apply to the domestic economy to European Union institutions. I think the big problem he faces, however, is that he's a leader without a deep base. The success of En Marche's movement is phenomenal. And of course, he will benefit from the Republican bloc against Le Pen. But as you say, it's a movement, not a party. That's the key, isn't it? Precisely. And who knows what will happen in the Assemblée Nationale elections to follow. But it's already the case that Sarkozy and others think that uh, the Republicans or the the centre-right generally will form a majority. Sarkozy is already positioning himself to be prime minister. I suppose in some respects Sarkozy has um, that quality that all politicians admire, which is um, the Churchillian ability to recover from any uh, reverse or disaster and show the same indefatigable will to power. But the broader point, whether or not Sarkozy is Prime Minister, whether or not the Republicans do particularly well, is that it's hard to see a situation where Macron will have an en marche majority in the Assemblée Nationale, and therefore there'll have to be some form of cohabitation. Uh, And of course that's worked in the past, but it also draws on or relies on a level of skill as a political compromiser, which uh, someone like Mitterrand had as his stock in trade. Part of the appeal of Macron is that he busts the old models and that he is not a conventional politician and that even though, of course, he's an enarch, he's not someone who is happy with the old school way of doing things. So 
it's not an insuperable problem. Macron has proven that he's a formidable politician. But it does mean that things, even with the majorities expected to enjoy in this presidential election, are not all plain sailing. And how do you think he squares the circle in that wider question about what Europe might be like over the next five to 10 years of balancing French interests against a project that's seen by many people in France as essentially caving into the Germans? I mean, he still faces that basic challenge that all French leaders have faced for the last 30 years, since Mitterrand. I think it's striking, isn't it, that uh, even though Macron will win, nevertheless, Le Pen and Mélenchon did so well in this race. And so you had two figures of extreme right and left commanding the support of around 40% of the French electorate. Uh, What's happened in France mirrors what's happened in other European countries where you've had centre-right and centre-left fracture and a two-party system has become a four-or-more-party system. Therefore, I think that if Emmanuel Macron tries to build support for the European Union on the basis that the European Union is a liberalising force, he'll come up against not just that 40% of um, unhappy and disoriented French voters. He will also challenge some of those in the centre trades unionists, public sector workers and others who are European in their hearts, of course. But they see the European Union as a means of taming the market, as a barrier against Anglo-Saxon capitalism and would feel disorientated, to put it mildly, if Macron saw greater European integration as a means, as he appears to, of driving greater competitiveness and structural reform. And is the risk, therefore, that a failed Macron presidency actually next time round, you know, the slogan Macron in 17, Le Pen in 22, that a failed Macron presidency is the really big risk that Europe faces going forward? Yes. Is is that a fear of yours? I I think it is a risk because my own view is that there are structural problems with the European Union that need to be fixed. And some of them are related to uh, the shape and the the size of the single currency. Others of them are related to the distance of European institutions from the people. And I think that there is the potential for Macron, if his government is not seen to be a success, if it doesn't continue to command popular consent, and if indeed there is during his presidential term, an economic reverse or a shock to French living standards, there is the potential for things to go very badly wrong because people will have felt that they've exhausted all other options. They've tried a, uh, a socialist in Hollande who didn't work. They've looked at the Republicans and they've seen that uh, from Sarkozy through Juppé to Fillon, they're all people who are tainted. And they've tried a clean skin. And if that goes wrong... What's left? What's left? Now, I think ultimately, still... Even if Macron has a troubled presidency, it would be a far bigger step for the French to vote for Le Pen than it ever was for the Americans to vote for Trump. And that's not because I'm making a judgment about either of them as individuals. It's simply the case that the nature of the Front National, its roots in Vichy, the association that it has with what happened in Algeria, the changing nature of the French demography, these are all significant barriers to the FN ever actually winning the presidency. But a lot rests on Macron's shoulders. And while I, as a a figure of the right in the UK, support broadly, much though not all, of his economic analysis, nevertheless, I I recognise that support for, you know, broadly right of centre, free market, liberalising, deregulating economic views, that's still a minority taste in France. He will have a mandate. And 
Mr. Varoufakis has just published his book about the challenges he faced. And one of the lessons that he drew is that everyone in Europe has their mandate. Mrs. May, again, not prejudging anything, but Mrs. May will almost certainly have her mandate. And then over the next few years, a series of democratic politicians, each of whom will claim to speak for their national electorates, will have to negotiate a new future for Europe. So the Varoufakis line is that that always goes wrong because no one's mandate trumps anyone else's. So how do you square that circle? And how will Mrs May square that circle? Well, I've, I've Without spe- getting party political. Well, no, no, quite, absolutely. It's a very, very powerful point. And it, 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 as I've read um, Yanis Varoufakis' book uh, this week and I read his, his previous... I should uh, say, I've only read the reviews. Oh, so no, no, you're, no, no, you're no, one no, up on me. No, not at all. And I read, um, I, I read his previous book. And uh, as well as being you know, a gifted phrase maker, he also gets to the heart of the dilemma of the European Union or the challenge of the European Union. Obviously, its success historically has been entrenching democracy. And Greece itself moved from the authoritarian shadow of the colonels to becoming fully democratic thanks to the EU, as did in their own way Spain and Portugal moving from authoritarianism and also the countries of the Eastern Bloc moving from communism. That's, that's the EU's great prize and laurel. But its great problem now, as Varoufakis points out, is that at the top, those who drive the institutions are wary of too much democracy and transparency because they fear that that can corrode into populism. And Varoufakis in his book uh, makes it very clear that at certain points he will have social democrats in France and Germany who want to show solidarity with him. Or indeed even Mario Draghi at the European Central Bank showing a degree of understanding of his plight. But ultimately they privilege the unity and the, uh, the pristine quality of the institutions and the integrationist drive above his mandate. Now, that's exactly your point. Greece, however, is different from France or the United Kingdom, not because its people are any less worthy of dignity, but simply in terms of economic and political weight. So when you do have in France or in the United Kingdom, or for that matter in Italy, if you have in a major European nation a a clash between the EU institutions and that country, then a different game is played. This is Talking Politics. My name is David Runciman. So how does your vision of Europe, and we're going to hear about that in Cambridge in a minute, I hope, but not on this podcast, so we can report it back. How does your vision of Europe arise out of this functional system, which includes different claims to democracy, different fears of democracy, a fear of populism across the board? Not what does post-Brexit Britain look like? But how do you get to a vision of Europe that a politician like you would feel was progress? Well, I, I think that um, if one takes two or three steps back, there's a fundamental mistake that's been made in attributing to nation-states the pathological quality that some do. The belief that nation-states are in and of themselves carriers of a virus that leads to war, I think that's wrong. I think that there are a variety of reasons why conflicts arise. And of course, hypernationalism is one of them. But I think that the European Union, understandably, in the shadow of the Second World War, wanted to move away from either armed camps or from the dark shadow of hypernationalism. And I think in so doing, the pendulum has swung too far in favour of institutions which are detached from popular feeling. And I think that there is a, a democratic sweet spot where you have nation states cooperating and indeed pooling some sovereignty on some issues. But ultimately, there's a check. And that check is the is the pull on the string that uh, elections offer. And I think one of the the difficulties, for example, that Greece has is that even though uh, the vote for Syriza was so clear and the vote in the referendum for Oxy was so clear, nevertheless, the Greeks didn't observe anything dramatic changing. 
And that's one of the reasons why Greece remains in an unstable state. One of the reasons why we have difficulties in Spain and France is that people believe that their votes don't alter the fundamental direction of their country. And I think that we're in a stronger position to be able to have cooperation if people feel that there's a greater level of democratic control at the level of the nation state. So I want to ask you one more question, which relates to something you said in the referendum campaign, which became famous or notorious. I'm yes. not asking it in a, in a hostile spirit. Oh, that no. The British people are, have had enough of experts, which in some ways was a self-evident truth, I think. But we're in a different political situation now. There are broad issues at stake, but there's a huge technical challenge as well. So however this new Europe will emerge, it has to pass through a kind of minefield yes. of technical complexity. And one of the challenges here is that experts are going to play their role and somehow this has to be represented in a way that commands yes. democratic legitimacy so in a way that that problem has not gone away you know we're not going to be able to do this without experts yes. are we i don't know how long um uh, it takes to write a doctoral thesis i don't know how many sentences or words there should be in it but i'm sure i could write one about that one sentence that i uttered what i was trying to say yeah was specifically that people had had enough of experts from organisations with acronyms that had got things wrong in the past. And I was trying to make a narrow point about the IMF and others mispredicting both the consequences of staying outside the... So the were you currency. particularly talking about economists? I was in that, in, that, in that context, and a particular type or subset of economists. However, I'll be fair, or, or seek to be, one of the reasons why my words... I, I fear taken out of context, but that happens when you're a politician. One of the reasons why my words had a, a resonance, good or bad, notorious or not, is that they spoke to a feeling that uh, voters, in some cases, appeared to feel that they'd been patronised, and elites, in some cases, felt that their leadership was no longer respected in the way that it had been perhaps a generation ago. So, you know, in that sense... And that's uh, what I meant by self-evident oh, truth. No one, I think, is denying exactly. that. But elite and expert are different. They are things. very different things. And I think you're absolutely right. And I think we're in Cambridge, so we can we can make those nuances and distinctions. And I think you, you, we, we do need technical expertise. We need expertise in the details of trade negotiations. We need technical diplomatic expertise and understanding what different countries within the European Union want. We need expertise in emotional intelligence, hmm. in understanding how you can start a negotiation even when people are variously either hurt or angered and bring them to an understanding of what might be in people's common interests. I think the other thing, though, is that even though we definitely need expertise, which is either technical economics or human psychology, I think we also need to recognise that one of the feelings of the moment is a sense amongst the public that some votes and some voices appear to matter more than others. And I think that without wanting to... Uh, read too much into the local elections in the United Kingdom, I think one of the reasons that Theresa May has done so well politically is that she articulates a sense that uh, for those people who've been perhaps overlooked or felt overlooked because they don't have either the connections or the capital to be able to influence what happens in Westminster, she's their champion. And in that sense in Britain, um, the Brexit vote and the support for the Conservatives since then has been a very mild and gentle counter-revolution and it's a counter-revolution that's put Theresa at its head and I think it's striking and again I'm not inviting any listener necessarily to think better of the Conservatives for it but just as an objective I think one of the functions of a healthy centre-right party is to ensure that parties which are raucously populist or which dabble in you know 
the, the darker side of human nature, can be marginalised or extinguished. And I think it's a good thing that there's no BNP anymore in this country, and also a good thing that UKIP appears to have um, well, let's deflated. Be, they've been obliterated, let's be frank. Yes, as that's of, how it looks. As of 10 past five on Friday. That's how it looks. And, they've, and, they, and that's happened, while at the same time you have a Prime Minister in Theresa May, who is someone who was a Remainer, and someone who relatively early in her political career, challenged the Conservative Party to change and modernise by saying that it was seen as the, as the nasty party. So you haven't had to have a, a Tory demagogue or a uh, someone who's had to stoop to conquer in order to do that. And one final question. It's going to have to be a brief answer. It's a big question. Do you have any fear that the technical challenges will overwhelm what you've just been talking about, which is the intuitive appeal of what Theresa May is trying to do. I mean, do you have any fear that two to three years down the line, the technical challenges will have bogged Brexit down? Well, I think... Um, Honestly, do you not fear that? No, I do, I do think that there are significant technical challenges. And having been in government, I'm well aware how even when you're surrounded by incredibly bright people in public service, sometimes the sheer complexity of moving from situation A to situation B can, you know, can seem incredibly daunting. But... I do think that whoever wins the election, the fact that we will have not just the two years up to the Article 50 coming to an end and that process coming to an end, but we will also, I hope, have some period to ensure that there can be, whether you call it a transition or an interim period, a bedding down, a dotting of I's and a crossing of T's. I think that's in everyone's interest. Thank you very much to Michael Gove. If you think there are some questions I should have asked there, do please let us know. We'll be back in our regular slot Wednesday night to talk about Mr. Macron again, but that will probably be the last time we'll discuss him. And to get back to the British general election and the extraordinary local election results that we're seeing in real time today. Do join us then. My name is David Runciman and we've been talking politics. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.